This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. This time of year, climate change seems kind of right in our face. We've just made it through another scorching summer. In fact, the third warmest since they started keeping records in 1895. Meanwhile, Virginia's coastal regions are grappling with seawater rise. And on some days, that haze covering the Blue Ridge is smoke from California wildfires. Despite this, the U.S. government's response to climate change has long been, uh, tepid. Years of kicking the can down the road, or in some circles, simply denying the problem. But this year, that changed. Last month, U.S. Congress passed the biggest climate law in U.S. history, under the unassuming name Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA is the smaller version of last year's Build Back Better proposal, with a number of compromises made to West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. So now, the IRA will provide strong incentives for people to choose clean energy through their consumer choices. To help us understand the ins and outs of the Inflation Reduction Act and what it means for Virginia, we're talking later in this episode with Bill Shobe. He's the director of the Center for Economic and Policy Studies at UVA's Weldon Cooper Center. He's an environmental economist who's committed to making Virginia carbon neutral by 2050. He talked with us about decarbonization and Virginia's future in clean energy. But first, we turn to Ivy Maine. She's a writer, lawyer, and environmental advocate. She explains that despite the concessions made, the Inflation Reduction Act is still a climate game changer. And it's one that Virginia is particularly well positioned to benefit from. Ivy Main spoke with Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner. It is certainly the most significant thing that our federal government has done to address climate change. It is an enormous step forward. And for me, it takes us from the position of we are failing to maybe we can actually do this. It's, it is that big a game changer. What parts of the law do you, as an environmental advocate, get most excited about? The parts of it that I think are most influential are the things that put a tailwind behind the transition to renewable energy and electrification, both of transportation and buildings. Those trends were already happening, but they weren't happening very fast, and they were held back by all of the embedded subsidies we have for fossil fuels. This changes uh, the playing field so that renewable energy and electrification now have the advantages in policy and economics that they already had in technology. Mm, Yeah. How exactly is it incentivizing uh, the renewable energy and and solar and wind? Primarily, since this is an economic bill, they had to do everything through economics in order to be able to get it through the Senate with a 51 votes rather than what you would ordinarily need, which would be something that could defeat a filibuster. So the whole thing is done through economics. And that's why we're seeing so many tax incentives and rebates in it. And that's that's the framework for getting more renewable energy and getting more electric vehicles and offering incentives for building electrification. So, you know, if before you were thinking, well, it's a little too expensive to buy an induction stove and get rid of the gas in my home. This now makes the incentive quite clear and it it changes how you think about it. And it does that in, in many little ways that add up enormously. I'm curious, like in your article that you'd written, you'd said that this bill kind of had three main themes 
Um, I'm curious, could you just like explain what those themes are and why they matter? Okay, so you've got the incentives to use renewable energy and move away from fossil fuels, and that is at the heart of it. But the way that it, that Congress chose to do this was to focus on making sure that the benefits are going to go to the people who need them most. So there are a lot of provisions to support marginalized communities to make sure that some of these incentives are going to low-income areas, to areas they call energy communities, like places that had been supported by coal mining. They get extra incentives. If you put renewable energy on homes in a former mining community, you can get an extra tax credit from it. Same thing for low-income communities. And then there is also uh, the job creation aspect. So for larger projects, in order to get the full credit, the developer has to have a certain percentage of the um, workers go through apprenticeship programs and they must pay prevailing wages, which is set by the Department of Labor. So these are going to be good jobs. And when you're looking at the kinds of problems that we have in income inequality here, a lot of the problem is that most entry-level jobs are low-paying, you know, retail jobs, that kind of thing. If you can be giving people good jobs in green energy, which we know is a huge and growing field, and this bill is going to make it grow even faster, then we've really addressed a large part of the problem of income inequality. So it is a really well thought out approach to energy. And then the final thing that is there are incentives to bring manufacturing and the supply chain back to the US. And as over the years, the supply chains have gone overseas where it got cheaper labor and cheaper materials and lower regulation. There's a, a very definite attempt to bring that supply chain and manufacturing back to the US. And part of that is making sure that we have the jobs here, but it's also about getting us out of the situation we're in right now where everything is hung up on the supply chain. You're, you're waiting for pieces from around the world to get to the U.S. before you can make equipment. And by having it in the U.S., you're taking care of both sides at once. So there are credits for manufacturers for here that will offset higher costs. And then there are also requirements for using U.S. made components in order to get the full tax credits. You had mentioned that this is specifically an economic bill. So they had to like approach these issues from that angle. Right. I'm curious, like what was the other option for it to like, what would have it looked like from another angle? What other angles would they have attacked this from? I don't know if that's a strange question. I just find that interesting. That's, no, that's actually a really good question. Um, mostly when we want to attack a problem, we do it by regulation rather than by money. Like California has decided that it's going to phase out internal combustion engines, right? Gasoline cars. You could see that happening at a federal level, except I don't see that happening with our federal level. But, but I mean, that would be an approach to dealing with the problem of carbon pollution from the transportation sector is just say, we're going to stop building these cars. Instead, we're this is taking the approach of let's incentivize people to buy electric vehicles instead. It's a somewhat more indirect approach, but I think it should get to the same 
outcome. I mean, one of the things that people don't really consider when they're looking at the trend line of electric vehicles is that once you get to the point where they're cheaper upfront, it's not the same steady upward progress. It's suddenly a sharp demarcation. Who would buy a gasoline car if they have the charging and if it is cheaper upfront? So it's like we see in Scandinavia, which has very high taxes on gasoline cars. Almost all the new cars being bought are electric because it's cheaper and they have the charging. So who would choose otherwise? So you don't necessarily need to prohibit the availability of gasoline cars if you have the technology and the cost at a point where nobody would want anything else. You had made the case that Virginia is like especially well positioned to benefit from this bill. Um, What is it that Virginia is doing and why is Virginia so well positioned? In 2020, we passed the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which creates a framework for an energy transition to a zero energy electricity sector. And in 2021, we passed a a clean transportation, the clean cars bill that creates better incentives for electric vehicles. And we have programs for like electric school buses. At the same time, all of Southwest Virginia needs a new economy um, model because it had been reliant on coal mining. Coal mining jobs are now down to, I think, around 3,000 jobs, something like that. It's very low in Virginia now. But you've got all these former coal workers who need new careers. So the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that are targeted to these energy communities will help us with that transition. There's other provisions from previous laws, like the infrastructure, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law has a lot of money for cleaning up abandoned mine lands. So there was already money coming in. And if you can take those abandoned mine lands and turn them into solar farms, you've got a win-win situation, right? So that's part of that. We've also, we're often running on offshore wind, which will be a bigger and bigger part of the energy supply for the East Coast. And as the technology improves, we'll start seeing floating wind turbines. And so Virginia is uh, already developing manufacturing supply chain businesses in the Hampton Roads region to take advantage of the offshore wind technology. And so putting some extra incentives out there for renewable energy will help us develop that industry as well. Um, And then finally, solar energy is the cheapest form of new electricity in Virginia. And anything you do that makes that further incentivized is going to be good for Virginia. What parts of this law do you see to be like most impactful for like everyday Virginians? Like what will people be most? Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that because because we've been talking really about the effects on the grid and so forth. But one of the aspects of the law is how much it gives to ordinary residents to affect climate action through their consumer choices. So in particular, things you can do in your your home, such as rebates for switching to heat pump, electric heat pump instead of a gas burner, or an induction stove instead of a gas stove, heat pump water heater instead of a gas water heater. So I think that home electrification will be a big part of it. 
Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about the electric vehicles and giving the full tax credit for new vehicles, but also a tax credit for used vehicles, which is what most vehicle sales are. So that's that's going to be important for ordinary people who can't afford new cars, that they can get a rebate for buying a used electric vehicle. You know, as electrification continues and as batteries get better, I think we will see all kinds of things that currently use fuel now become electrified. Things like leaf blowers and lawnmowers, you know, will start being electric. And that's something where consumer choice will really drive the change. I'm curious, like with October coming up, that's when like Virginia law requires a new governor to like produce an energy plan. Yeah. So yeah, so Youngkins is coming up. I'm curious, like, what do you expect that to look like? This is going to be interesting because <laughs> because the energy plan, um, the the Senate also rewrote the Commonwealth Clean Energy Policy. I won't say Senate; the whole General Assembly did, and it requires the energy plan to specify actions over the next ten years that will support the Commonwealth Energy clean energy plans goal of a clean energy economy by 2045. So he's got to come up with actions that support the energy transition. And this is a guy who campaigned against Virginia's energy transition. He is still trying to get us out of the regional greenhouse gas initiative. He campaigned against the Clean Economy Act. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he writes an energy plan that requires him to take those as a given and to work towards their goals. Uh, now, given the the IRA and the other laws in place, even if you don't like the transition to a carbon-free economy, there are all kinds of reasons you would want to take the money, right? These are going to create jobs. These are going to create business opportunities. And so a good energy plan, even from someone who doesn't really like that direction, ought to lean into it. Politically, I'm less certain that he will do that. You know, that's not his, that's not where he thinks his political future is. So I'm going to be quite curious to see. Now, he's got very good people at the Virginia Department of Energy working on this plan, and they are themselves committed to following Virginia's laws. So there is a real tension here. Um, we'll just have to see. When we started, you asked how much of a game changer this is. And we've been focusing on the energy sector. I, I think it is important to recognize that there are a lot of sectors of the economy that this doesn't address. Agriculture, industry, you know, it is much harder to decarbonize the industrial sector. There is a lot that is outside this bill, and we still have to recognize that there's a, a huge challenge ahead of us. And we are addressing here just uh, a few sectors of the economy. It is very, it is, these are huge. And I think there are other things happening that will make some of those other choices easier, but we still have to set it in the context of, of a very big problem. But as I say, this, this makes me think we may have it in us to, to do it. Ivy Maine is a writer, lawyer, and environmental advocate. Stay with us. We've got UVA environmental economist Bill Shope in the second half of today's show. 
You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. If you've ever had a question about state politics, just let us know. Maybe we'll do a show about it. Shoot us an email at bolddominion at virginia.edu. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Go ahead and subscribe. Hey, and leave a nice review for us while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. And we're back. We turn now to Bill Shobe. He's an economics professor at the University of Virginia, as well as the director of the Center for Economic and Policy Studies at UVA's Weldon Cooper Center. Even before the Inflation Reduction Act, Virginia has been on the path towards clean energy. Professor Shobe sat down with Bold Dominion producer Alana Bittner. He talks about what our energy landscape looks like now and what it'll take for Virginia to become carbon neutral by 2050. If you add it all together, the conclusion you come to is this is something we can do. And this is something that in the short run is the most natural thing in the world because it's the cheapest path forward. And in the longer run, we know that Virginia, like other states, has a lot to lose if we don't address climate change. And so being a contributor to the solution of that problem by moving ahead with decarbonization pushes the rest of the world in a direction that's ultimately really good for us. Our efforts to decarbonize are contributing to this global move to reduce CO2 emissions that comes back and benefits us in a big way. You've done a lot of research on carbon neutrality in Virginia and getting there by 2050. Like what specifically does it, will it take yeah. for Virginia well, to get there? We're, we use a lot of energy in the transportation sector in Virginia. And if you think about transportation, of course, right now, almost all of our transportation is fossil fuel based. You know, I'm sure that the use of electric cars is growing very fast. And a lot of the major U.S. manufacturers have announced they're going to even stop selling fossil fuel cars by the middle of the next decade. I'm guessing Virginia's probably running close to 5% electric vehicles right now. I don't know, earlier in the year, Tesla alone was 6% of all sedans, all non-SUV light vehicles sold in the state. So it's moving very fast. It's moving faster than the regulations require, actually. So transportation is moving forward, shall we say. One of the things that Virginia is going to need to address in the next few years is the building code. Updating the building code to acknowledge that we need to move away from fossil-based heating and cooling. We need to move towards more efficient building shells in order to get all the advantages of new technologies that are available. We have two more sectors to talk about. One is the industrial sector. A lot of industrial processes need very high heat. So you burn natural gas or you burn oil to get this high process heat for industrial purposes. It turns out to be pretty hard to replace. You can't just put electricity there and expect it to be as cost effective. It's just not that simple for industry. While it's important to push ahead with trying to find ways to 
replace the use of fossil fuels in industry. It may be so expensive to do so that it would actually be better to go ahead and use some fossil fuels for the process heat in industry, but to pull it back out of the air someplace else and put it back in the ground. And that part is called carbon dioxide removal. And so it may be that it would be cost effective to do something that seems kind of silly, put CO2 in the atmosphere first and then take it back out again. But replacing the process heat in industry can be so difficult that it would actually be worth doing it that way. Now, let's tackle the electricity sector uh, last. It turns out we actually tackled it first. We have the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which requires that Virginia's electricity sector essentially become decarbonized by 2050. There are several steps in that process, and the schedule for Dominion Energy is different than the schedule for Appalachian Power. And But the long and short of it is that the law pretty much requires that we eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from electricity generation by 2050. So how do we do that? Well, in the short run, it's pretty easy to see the path forward because right now, hands down, even without the Inflation Reduction Act, solar energy is our cheapest new source of power in Virginia, period. So if we wanna generate more electricity, we want to do it with solar if we want the cheapest new source of energy. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act makes it even cheaper. So it would be crazy to build anything else right now. And eventually, uh, we'll want to build some offshore wind. We're currently in the process of planning an offshore wind farm that may or may not get built as early as the current plans are. There's a lot of discussion about that right now. But in the longer run, we'll definitely want to build some offshore wind. The cost is falling pretty quickly, and it's going to become competitive with other sources of energy within the next decade or so. So in the short run, we're going to be building new solar facilities to meet our increased energy needs because it's our cheapest. And the nice thing about building new solar facilities is that as we build more and more of it, it's going to displace imports of fuel from other places. Right now, we're importing our coal from Kentucky and Pennsylvania. We're importing our natural gas from Pennsylvania and Texas. So all the fossil fuels we're using in our power plants are coming from other places with small exceptions. So uh, the more solar we build, the more we're generating our own electricity with our own resources and not sending the money for those things elsewhere, which is ultimately going to be good for Virginia's economy. Now, I want to mention one other thing. If you're going to modify your electricity sector like this so much, you're going to build a lot of distributed solar generation and we're going to build offshore wind. We have to pay attention to something that nobody really pays much attention to most of the time, and that is the transmission of power. We have a grid of wires that distribute energy from where it's generated to where it's used, and it's sort of like a tree and roots. You know, you have these trunk lines that send lots of power through large transmission lines, and then it goes out to the distribution system. The problem is that system was built 
on the idea we're going to have a few great big central station power plants and a few big cities where most of the energy is used. And our transmission system was built to serve that kind of system. Now we have a world where we're harvesting energy from all across the Commonwealth and shipping it to other places all across the Commonwealth. And we're going to be harvesting wind power offshore. We're going to be harvesting solar power all across the southern tier of the state. So we're going to need to plan carefully to make sure that our new grid is able to serve this new structure of generation. So modernizing our grid is going to be one of the things we have to pay a lot of attention to. I saw in an interview you did elsewhere that you had said that currently no agency of state government had the capacity, resources, and portfolio to aid like this decarbonization plan. I'm curious, like, could you talk more about the need for a centralized agency addressing this in Virginia and what hurdles do we face without yeah. one? Well, we have an agency for this, uh, but historically we just haven't given them the resources and the mandate. Um, Virginia is a regulated utility state. That means by law, we supply our electricity through a contract with a monopoly provider. That's Dominion Energy for a lot of the state and Appalachian Power for part of the state. So most of the electricity is, is generated in the state is generated by Dominion Energy. That's a policy choice Virginia makes. So we have a contract with Dominion. We guarantee them a rate of return. They agree to have their rates regulated by the State Corporation Commission. But now that we're moving to this different world, it's time to think about whether we need to develop some planning capacity that normally we would have gone to Dominion Energy to ask them to do. There is a reason to believe that we should have an agency with the independent mandate to do long-range planning and engineering studies and cost studies for our future energy supply. And the Virginia Department of Energy has really good people working for it, and they're doing a few of these things, but they've never been given a clear mandate for pulling together essentially all the agencies in state government that are involved in energy. And so we need an agency with a mandate to develop the technical expertise and with a mandate to bring together all the agencies that have some involvement in the energy system, and that's a lot of them and coordinate so that we're all working toward the same uh, goal in an efficient way. I've seen in past interviews, we were talking about like how right now it's kind of based on locality by locality has uh, different land use um, requirements. And so like without that centralized agency working together, like it's, it's very, very patchwork across the state, more or less. Is that? Well, well there are two pieces here. There's the the sort of overall planning for our energy system. And then there's the question of, well, where do we build the different plants and how do they get licensed? And localities in Virginia have really from the very beginning had the power to plan land use and plan, you know, how they develop over time. This has long been the authority of localities and the people who live in a place are probably in the best position to know what they want around them, right? So I'm not suggesting we take decision-making power away from localities. That's not it at all. Localities have a lot of decisions to make. And so what we really need to be doing is providing localities with decision support 
a lot of localities really don't have the kind of staff they need for evaluating these projects, the economics expertise they need to evaluate projects, all these things. And so providing them with helpful decision support so that they can make sensible choices about their own desires and needs is another thing the state could provide, especially in light of the Inflation Reduction Act, where some of our localities qualify for greatly enhanced incentives for building renewables. So for example, some of the localities in Virginia that historically had coal and methane production will qualify for much greater incentives at the federal level for building renewables. And localities stand to benefit quite a lot from taking advantage of this. Mm, That's so cool. I feel like in the past, you know, growing up in this era and just feeling like there's this constant existential dread and uncertainty of what our future is going to look like and being able to talk to people in the past couple of weeks about like concrete steps that we're taking policy wise to actually address this rather than just denying it all the time. It's been nice to, yeah. to hear that. I think coming away with a feeling of optimism is the right conclusion. We've done so much. If you go back 20 years and look at what the forecasts were for global emissions, and then you look today at the forecasts of global emissions, it's amazing what we've done. It's an astonishing transformation in a very short time because we understand the magnitude of the problem and lots of people are working to solve it. And the federal law that just got passed is an enormous contribution to doing that. And it's, <laughs> I teach environmental economics here at UVA, and there's going to be lots of opportunities for my students to get involved in the move towards decarbonization. So it was a great thing to get that law passed for jump-starting the process and moving it forward. Bill Shobe is an environmental economist at the University of Virginia. Thanks to him and also to Virginia-based writer, lawyer, and environmentalist Ivy Main, who joined us in the first half. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our show this week was produced and edited by the terrific Alana Bittner. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.